Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. We are studying the life of Jacob with Martin Luther. Let's take a look at the text. This is, um, we're in Genesis 31. It's a beautiful time uh, in this text. We see that the Lord is, has sent Jacob back to the promised land. And so he's headed back home. He's got the command of God, but he's got the blessing of his wives, et cetera, et cetera. But he then has Laban on his tail. And and uh, we, we can remember that, um, that that he was way, way chasing him way down there so that. Um, no, this is not a good blackboard so that so that uh, if you if we were looking on the map. We would see that. I'm going to change this over here. We would see that here's uh here's the Mediterranean like this. Here's here's Galilee, Dead Sea, Jerusalem's kind of in there. The Euphrates River is running this way. Here's he's way up here, and he and and uh and Jacob's going to go all the way down here, and Laban is going to track him down all the way to the mountains here of Gilead. It's good. in other words, it's a it's a long. They go a long ways uh, to get this all done, uh, to and to and to meet and for Laban to confront him. Now on the way, the Lord had said to Laban, "Hey, uh, do not, do not assault Jacob, do not speak badly of him, don't don't even raise your voice." Uh, and so he's going with the Lord's protection. So that's where we are. So. As everyone gets settled, here we are. God does not forsake. Now, Luther's making that the theological application beautifully here. Thus, God does not forsake believers, especially when they cry to him for true, uh, in true faith. Now, this is, um, I just want you to just to remember this. Uh, okay. Now, what happened? I messed up. Where do we go? I made my text disappear. This is I should I should probably someone said Pastor Wolfmiller, you should probably know how to do all this stuff. Well, I I do learn how to do all this stuff. And then it 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 changes it. And so it's all different. Okay, there we are. Now we're back. Back in action here. It's like every two months. Zoom updates just to make sure I never know where any of the controls are going to be. All right. So Luther's making the application of what's going on here. And he says, uh, God does not forsake believers, especially when they cry to him in true faith. Oh, yeah, that's right. I want you to remember this true faith here, this that they cry to him in true faith. So it this logic is there's faith and then there's prayer. And then there's uh, God's deliverance. And and then there, but there's things here too. And Luther's going to make this beautiful chain so that God gives faith, which results in which is attacked, which results in prayer, need prayer, and then God answers it. So that so that God is the source and the end of our prayers. He's going to talk about that in a little bit. That's just a little look what's to come. How many cruel how many and cruel counsels of kings, popes, and cardinals have been wondrously restrained, not by our strength or counsel, but by God's might. For he has smitten them with terror so that they would not dare do anything 
or if they have dared to do something, he has thrown their counsels and endeavors into disorder. Now, here's Luther talking especially about these diets, which are the meetings of the emperor. And he's going to talk about how there's been nine of them during his time and during the time of the Reformation, and how you have all these kings and emperors who want to overthrow the gospel, who want to overthrow the Wittenberg theologians and so forth. But look, that, that God has restrained them. And it's not by our strength. It's not by our counsel. And and here we get, I don't know how many particular themes are all woven here together, but our own humility, our own uh, weakness, our own lack of strength is highlighted. This is our own sinfulness and weakness. It's contrasted with God's might, and and so that God has smitten, uh, and he has thrown their counsels and endeavors into disorder. Now, the, I, the other thing that I want to highlight here, and I think for a couple of years, maybe five or six years, I've been, I've been wrestling through this thing. Do you see how Luther understands God working directly in history, in his own history, in his own life? At the Diet of Worms, at the Diet of Augsburg, at the Diet of Spire, and the other Diet of Spire, and all these meetings, the Diet of Augsburg, first and second, that Luther sees the Lord, the Lord's hand on all of these things, that the Lord is really governing the world. And this is important for us because when because when we say that that God works only through the word and the spirit, we are tempted to think that that everything else outside of the word, outside of the church service, outside of the of the sermon on Sunday, everything else is just kind of mechanical. Like we're spiritual in church and then we're just materialistically scientific outside of church. Mm-mm. The Lord is at work in all of these things, in, in all of our lives and in history, both big scale and small scale, the Lord is at work. And we we confess that. It's really great. Really, really important. Nine diets have been held. Here's Luther's discussion of history. And here, look at how he, Luther himself will describe the Reformation. Since the time when the gospel began to spring up again and shine on Germany. <laughs> I think that's great. What's the Reformation? Is the time when the gospel was springing up and shining. I think that's, I mean, I don't know of a more beautiful definition. While our adversaries raged in horrible fashion and made dire threats. Indeed, at Augsburg, men openly declared that they were prepared to pledge their property and blood. And they would have swallowed us alive from Psalm 124 had God not preserved us and made their counsels vain. How often we have seen an incendiary causing a commotion and stirring up the worst of troubles until he was thrown out of his land so that so that all these opponents, all these enemies would rise up against, against the Lord and his people, but the Lord would take care of them. They will also make more attempts in the future and will not rest until the until the Turks scatters them. Here, understand, Luther, who was no fan of the Turks, thought of the Turks like the Babylonians, so that in the time of Habakkuk, remember how Habakkuk's complaining about how bad the people were, and then the Lord says, well, I'm going to destroy them with the Babylonians, who were even worse. 
So Luther considers the Turks worse than the than the Catholics, but that the Lord is going to use this worser empire to to overthrow uh to overthrow the Catholic Church and and all their assaults on on the Reformation. Uh, let us therefore remember the example of the liberation of Jacob from Laban. It's a it's a it's a prototype of the release from Egypt. That here Jacob is in bondage to this crook and thief and greedy Laban, and the Lord is going to set him free and give him his own place, his fierce and cruel foe, by means of the word which he believed. So the liberation happens through the word, not through force. Jacob doesn't do anything. He doesn't gather up an army and battle, go to battle with Laban. He just has the word of God that says, hey, out you go. And he waits till Laban's way away so he can get out of there without any without any violence. But he has the word. Where the word is, oh, here's Luther's logic here. Where the word is, their faith is. And where faith is, there's a cry because of temptation. Remembering temptation being the broader sense of trouble and affliction. Also the temptation to sin, but also the temptation to doubt and despair and all that. And it's impossible for this cry not to be heard. And once heard, this cry breaks all the might of heaven and earth, as well as that of all the gates of hell. So that that you have here just just to get the logic down, to see how Luther's doing it, you have you have first dun, dun, dun. you have first the word, so God gives the word. And then the word creates faith. And then faith finds itself in the midst of trouble. So faith cries to God. That's prayer. And then prayer is heard. And then God acts. And nothing can resist his acting. So that so that God sends the word into our hearts, creates faith. That faith in the midst of trouble results in prayer. That prayer is heard by God. And then God acts to deliver us. This is, the, this is like the whole of our Christian life. We're just... In the midst of, of of this working of God, giving his word and and causing us to cry out to him, and then hearing our prayer and then answering and delivering us. And and that cry breaks all the might of heaven and earth, and that is the gates of hell. In other words, th- that nothing can stop the Christian's prayer. We were working on this, you know, this little book. It's got a new cover. The new cover ones haven't arrived yet. Lord teaches to pray. Luther's explanation of the Lord's prayer with these video footnotes on it. And it's over and over on all these pages is that it's the, that the strength that holds up the world is the prayer of the church. The reason why the wheat grows in the field is the prayer of the church. The reason why anything good is happening is the prayer of the church, that God is answering our prayers. It's really, it's really marvelous. Okay. So accordingly, that catalog of accusations, which Laban gathered together, Laban, remember, who has all these reasons to pursue Jacob, it's scattered. 
Indeed, Laban congratulated himself that he was warned by God only with words and not by some blow or cross because of the greed and envy towards his son-in-law, of which he was conscious. So now Luther's going to get into this. Um, he's going to get into the story of Laban and and try to understand what's going on in Laban's heart. So here, back in the text, remember, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled and he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to the to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Uh, we looked at this as a Hebraism. It means do not speak to Jacob from good to bad in an accusing way. You start off kind of buttering him up and then the accusations start to come in so that the Lord put the on that. Don't do that, Laban, so that the Lord is protecting Jacob from Laban. And here Luther said, look how Laban was happy that the Lord didn't wipe him out completely or give him some sickness or affliction. All he did was talk to him. And so he says, okay, I'm going to be okay. But still he was held back. His fury was, was uh, the Lord pulled the reins back on Laban's fury. So he can't just plow over Jacob. So he was so terrified and stung by the danger of death that he did not again wish to devise danger for his son-in-law, but desired to avoid the punishment and evil which he feared, although he was not improved by the warning. Now, look, this is the thing that, so he wanted to avoid punishment, but it didn't actually improve his heart. So the Lord comes to him with this warning, and instead of taking it to heart, and instead of repenting, truly repenting, Laban is marked only by a fear of punishment. That's the only thing that's going to hold him back. He soon returned to characters we shall hear. He restrained mm, he restrained his hands from doing anything evil. But he did not abstain from cursing and reviling. It was a gallows repentance or a Judas repentance. Just as the pontiffs and their satellites, the kings and princes, are held in check and hindered in their plans against us, their spirit is taken from them, Psalm 76, 12. Uh, this is cuts off the spirit of princes, but they do not receive their senses. They do, they do not recover their senses. This is a repentance of hypocrites and unbelievers who repent like Laban or Esau. It's not serious or voluntary repentance. Now, let's just look at the language that Luther's going to use. It's a, the gallows repentance. It's not serious. It's not voluntary. It's not free. It, they're not changed for the better. They are only frightened from their purpose so that they do not accomplish what they were trying to do. That that's this is the this is the faux repentance, the fake repentance that is more worried about getting caught or being punished than doing what's right and and truly repenting of sin. Uh, elsewhere, uh, I've stated how dreams are be distinguished. We took some time to take a look at that when we were back in volume five, the, the, um, Jacob's ladder. I think it's really, this is a really interesting thing. The last, I don't normally remember my dreams, but the last two days I've had really crazy dreams that I remember waking up in the morning. This, this, this morning I was dreaming. This is a funny one. I was dreaming that I was, uh, we were like cleaning up in the at church in the kitchen after some event. And I got a phone call from Jordan Peterson who, I, you know, the, this guy, and he's like, 
hey, is this Pastor Wolf Miller? I want to I want to talk to you. It's like, okay, well, let's talk this weekend. And then I woke up. It's weird. I don't know, Jordan, maybe you're watching. You can call me later. I'll be cleaning the chair. I don't know what that. So anyway, Luther talks about what, how do you know if a dream is a, is a true dream to be paid attention to or not? This is what he talks about here. True dreams bring impressions with them, which move the hearts with terror and a certain consternation. So it can't be despised. Such were the dreams of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. Other dreams are a sema, no sign, no stamp, no nothing, uh, without distinctive mark. And so to say, vain hopes and imaginations that should be despised. That's probably my dream. What was the other really weird dream? Was uh, two days ago, I was, we, this was, I, I, I don't know if you guys care about this. Probably not, but it'll break up the flow here. So uh, you guys can remember that we're doing a worldwide Bible class. I was, uh, I woke up and, oh, so the dream was, we were in Luther's birth house in Eisleben. But I was looking around and I'm like, this isn't right. This is, this is, something's wrong about this. And, I, and I'm like, I don't think, this doesn't seem like it's German. And the, there's this, all these mountains around and it wasn't how Luther's birth house was really. I was like, this is like a replica of Luther's birth house. And there was a sign that was in German. There was a sign in American. I was like, what's going on? And I, and there's Carrie and some other people, and I, uh, and I realized it was a replica of Luther's birth house in Idaho. And I was like, "How do we get here? We were just in Luther's birth house in, in Germany." And Carrie said, well, "That was a year ago." And we went home and did all the stuff, and now we're in Idaho at this Luther birth house. And I lost completely lost my memory for a whole year, in between. So I'm like, "What's going on?" Anyway, I was I have this idea of writing a book about a guy who lost his memory, and the only way he knows who he is is from the Lord's Prayer. It's like I don't know. It's like it's like born identity, except for without any violence, and it's just a dude in the Lord's Prayer. I don't, I don't know if it'd be an exciting movie, but you're like I, I don't know who I am, and then you say, "Our Father, who art in heaven," and you're like, "Oh." I have a father and I have brothers and sisters and my father is in heaven. He's God. Whoa. And so we start to learn who we are from the Lord's prayer. Right. Anyway, Luther's talking about dreams. I thought I'd mentioned my most recent ones. There you go. Uh, okay. Back to the text, which is better. Uh, how do we know if the uh, angels are, if the dreams are true dreams or not here, we say, uh, does it trouble you? Does it come with a certain consternation or is it just passing sort of thing? But so we know that this dream from that the Lord gives to Laban is a true dream. He's got this great consternation. Now let us apply the example before us for our doctrine and use for is set before us for this reason that we may see that God is present with his own, although they are wretched and weak. This is the promise. God is present with his own even though we are weak, wretched, that we have nothing to defend ourselves, that we are, that it would, you know, looking, it would be, seems like it would be easy to overthrow the church. But the Lord is with us. Laban is far more powerful than Jacob, who finds himself in the greatest danger 
unarmed, poor, but Jacob has the word. The word. Accordingly, God and his hosts of angels are present with believing Jacob as he prays. For just as God led the patriarch out of his father's house, so he leads him back, employing the protection of the angels. So the Lord took him out of the father's house. Now he's taking him back. The, the holy angels are protecting him. He knows the angels are there. He saw him in the vision of the ladder. So in the same manner, if we believe the word and adhere to it in firm and steadfast faith, he will also help us and set us free, even in the very midst of plague, death, and war. For it is impossible for the man who believes God's word to be forsaken and not defended. That's the promise. That's the thing that we, that's the point. This is what we want to take home. Luther says, this is also, look, it's, we need to apply the example to us and we need to use it. And the way we use it is having this confidence. The angels, the following story about the angels will bear very strong testimony to the same fact. Luther's thinking about the angels here. Their power overcomes the strength of all enemies as the example of the siege of Jerusalem under Sennacherib teaches. Remember, this is great. It's when Isaiah is in Jerusalem with the king and the guy and the Rabshakeh is sitting there telling them how they're going to, you know, everything's going to go to, to pot. Everything's going to fall apart. And the, and the angel of the Lord goes out and kills, what, 186,000 men in one day? Christ says in Matthew 26, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Accordingly, when we're under the protection of God, there is no doubt that we are also under the safekeeping and guardianship of the angels, who are present with those who are encountering dangers in life, and who conduct the dead to the place of peace and rest. So here Luther gives two works of the angels. They protect the Christians, and they carry us to the place of rest when we die. David, Psalm 91, he will give his angels charge over you. You will not dash your foot against a stone. And Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. These things should admonish and stir us up gladly to hear and love the word, but even more gladly to believe the word in this confidence that we are covered by the protection of the angels. Uh, Luther wrote in his morning and evening prayer, which I think he just adopted from the monastic prayer, but uh, in the morning, for example, I thank you, my heavenly father, through Jesus Christ, your dear son, that you have graciously kept me this night. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commit myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. So that we're to daily not only be reminded of the presence of God, but to be reminded of the presence of the angels. We can't see them, yet we know that they're all around us and that they're guarding and keeping us, protecting us from the demons and the devil. And we don't speak to them or pray to them. We're not given that command, but we do ask God for the angels to come and protect us. Okay. So much about the commandment of God, whereby Laban is forbidden to make any trouble for Jacob in word and deed. For this pronouncement 
of God throws into disorder the catalog of accusations Laban had gathered, as well as all his calculations. The Hebrew idiom puts it this way, Don't, do not speak with Jacob from good to evil, namely by beginning at the good and resorting to the evil. That's where, again, we talked about that, how kind of you butter him up and then the accusations start to come and now he's guilty and a criminal. But Laban did not obey in all the respects, although he was compelled to abstain from action. But this catalog is completely rejected. Your cruel counsels and thoughts, says the voice of God, are nothing but a mere dream of vanity, error, and lying. So you must not indulge in your fury. Yet he does not restrain himself from inveighing against Jacob with altercations and revilings. There follows a very bitter complaint. So the Lord had come to, to Laban, who was pursuing him, and who knows what the plot was? Who knows what Laban was going to do to Jacob? If he was going to kill him, steal all his stuff, if he was going to arrest him, if he was going to bring him back by force and put him into slave labor, which is probably the plot because, because Jacob was very valuable to Laban, whatever, he's going to have a, an accusation right there and bring him back. But the Lord says, look, don't even make any accusations. Now, Luther says that this warning from God restrains Laban from all the fullness of his evil, but he does still make an accusation against him. So we're in verse 25 now. Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his kinsmen encamped in the hill country of Gilead. So, again, that's all the way, all the way down. I'm wondering if I have a, a map of Israel around, around here. I got one on the... We looked at it last week. I I don't. I ne I I. Hmm. Let's try. Let's see if I can. If I can pull up an atlas. Gilead. Well, oh yeah, here. Okay, Jacob starts it here. Oh, this is the. It's actually pretty good. That's what we wanted. So. So here's where, here's where Jacob, and here's where Laban's house was up here. And Jacob fled all the way back down here. And it's and it's right in here. Um it's right here. So when he, he leaves, he goes to the west of the Sea of Galilee, but when they're coming back, it's the north. Here's Gilead, right in here. So Laban is gonna track down Jacob all the way there, and this is where they meet and where this encounter is gonna happen. Um Jill says, many of the statements of this theme in Psalm 37, the arms of the wicked will be broken. The Lord upholds the righteous. They will not be ashamed in time of disaster. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. The Lord will not forsake his favored ones. They will be protected forever. Amen. Psalm 37 is beautiful precisely for that. So here, so here's in Gilead. And remember, remember the rule for, for these places is Gilead. It's, it's G-A-M-E. So Gilead, Ammon, uh, Moab, and Edom. Those are that's the ordering of the of the nations over here. Nor Edom's kind of down here, and Moab is kind of here, and they're up and down and all over the place. They're always fighting, and these are always moving, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to do a land acknowledgement over there, you get you kind of figure out how far back you want to go. That's how that works. Okay. So now Laban overtakes him down there in Gilead. 
Uh, how long did Laban pursue Jacob before he overtook him? I don't know. Is it a week? Jacob had a three-day start, so Laban was charging pretty hard. And Luther's going to take this. Uh, let's see. Jacob pitched his tent in the in the mountains. Luther says hill country. Laban with his brethren pitched it in the mountains of Gilead. Laban, his kinsmen, camped in the hill country of Gilead. That Jacob's going to be kind of down here in the foothills, and Laban's going to be up on the mountain. After the reproof and admonition which Laban had heard in the dream, namely that he should not say anything harsh to Jacob, he still proceeded, even though all his counsels and fierce passions were confounded. Although he can do no harm, he adopts a posture of violence and rage by threatening harm. He does not want to appear frustrated in his counsels, nor does he want to dis depart without achieving anything. So he's still acting as though he's going to overthrow Jacob. He thought it disgraceful for himself to boast in this way to no purpose and to breathe for slaughter and empty threats. This is, he puts on a show of great indignation as if he wanted to pursue his own purpose and disregard the divine will. So he's still acting like God had not constrained him. This is the, this is the demonic strategy is to act like you're in charge and like you can overthrow the enemy even though the Lord has told you, no, stop, you cannot. In short, this is an excellent picture of hypocritical and feigned repentance. In other words, it's, it's, he heard the word of the Lord who said, don't do, don't, you're, stop your plotting. And he said, no, no. In this way, even the wicked are sometimes pricked in conscience, as they used to say formerly in the schools. Not that they're truly pricked or seriously repentant, but they pretend repentance and grief for their sin. I'm held to this opinion. I held to this opinion at one time. In other words, Luther says, I used to be repentant like this, not a true repentance, but a pretend repentance, a kind of fake repentance. It's not, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it doesn't change you. It doesn't, it doesn't get to the heart. It's just, oh, I got caught kind of thing. David's words to Nathan, I have sinned must be understood altogether differently than the word of Saul, who likewise said to Samuel, I have sinned. So it's the same words, but it's a, but a totally different thing is happening. It's indeed the same word, the same voice, the same face of compunction and of repentance, but the hearts are very different. David's heart is Against you and you only have I sinned. Saul's was, oh man, I'm caught. It's different. Very different. For the repentance of the wicked is such that they grieve more about the prohibition of their evil desires and sins than about the mortification of their corrupt desires and sins. Now, this is how I've been I've been thinking about this in the midst of temptation and sin, because we we're all sinners, we're all tempted in one way or another. And here and we all are both spirit and flesh, right? So, so in our own condition, we have the spirit of God in our spirit who wants to do well. And then you have the flesh, which wants to sin and rebel against God. And, and we have these two things fighting and warring against one another. And the question is, 
which side am I on? Which side is the I? <laughs> this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. The good that I want, oh, that I do not do. So he puts the I on the spirit side of the battle, not on the flesh side of the battle. And this is the way that what Luther's talking about, is this true repentance or not? Am I am I glad when the flesh is rebuked because the 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 less the authority, the less strength, the less vigor the flesh has, the better, because I'm over here. So the losing of the flesh is good for me. Or look, if I'm over here, then the losing of the flesh, which is repentance, is bad for me because it prevents me from doing what I want to do. It stops me from following out, following through with the plans that I have, the evil plans that I have. So which side of this battle line, here's the battle line between flesh and spirit, which side am I on? And when we, when, when trouble comes, when repentance comes, when mortification comes, if I'm over here, I'm happy about it. If I'm over here, I'm sad about it. So that to be truly repentant is to, is to send, is to be, is to be here. Now, Eric says, how do we not fall into Gnosticism? Well, remember that the, the spirit flesh distinction is not the body soul distinction. So the Gnostic would say, oh, the spirit, that's my inner life, that's my soul, and my flesh, that's my body. He said, no, 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 no. That's a, the flesh is the sinful nature, which has both soul and body in it. For example, when I don't trust God's promises, when I rage under the um, troubles of this life, when I don't believe that God hears me when I'm praying— that's the flesh in my soul. On the other hand, the spirit is both soul and body, so that when I, for example, receive the body of Jesus in my in my on my very lips, that's a spiritual body. My body is spiritual. So the way to avoid Gnosticism is to is to make sure that we don't. Um, equate the spirit and flesh with the soul and the body. I could draw another picture because this picture I'm sure is a, is a, is rock solid. It's a, a totally understandable. So here's a, here's how, here's how um, the, the danger. Okay. So we are body and soul, body and soul. But when we were, when Adam and Eve were body and soul in the garden, they were all spirit. Their body and soul, they had a spiritual body, a spiritual soul. But then what happens is, uh, let me see if I can, is that they fell, and now their body and soul, instead of being spirit, their body and soul is all flesh. And this is how we're born. We are born flesh. But what happens is when we uh, are baptized, then God sends his spirit, and now we are spirit. We have the spirit, I should say. Our spirit comes alive with the spirit of God. The unclean spirits are removed. The Holy Spirit is present, etc. 
so that we are body, soul, and flesh, spirit, but those are not the same. Those are not the same. Uh, let's see. Mark says, can you explain metanoia as the same as repentance? So metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. Uh, and the, the nice thing about it is it reminds us that um, it, it the the idea is to is to change is a change of mind. Let's see. Metanoi is this right? Metanoia. Metanoia. So that might uh, something like that. Meta. Metanoia, and this comes from the uh, noose, which means the of mind and especially thought and meta is wow what here is this at least in this it's going to mean to change meta is meta what's the easiest way for meta adjust i don't so so that here are we're 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 headed this direction we we're thinking these things and to repent is to junk think these things and remember that there's two changes of thoughts that repentance involves, two and a third. That to repent means to one, to change the way I think of myself. So me and I by nature think of myself as good. No, now I think of myself as a sinner. That's that's the first change of mind. And then the second change of mind has to do with God. And uh, and we because I'm a sinner, I think that God is mad. But no, my mind is changed in Christ, and I think God is the Savior. And so repentance is to know these two things. It's to, it's, to, it's to know, first of all, that I am a sinner, and second of all, that God is the Savior of sinners. And those are the two great and most difficult things to change our minds about. Remember that those two parts of repentance are the two most important things to know and the two most difficult things to know in all the world. Jill says, it seems like a lot of the mystery in theology involves two natures, body, soul, flesh, spirit, body, blood, bread, wine, water, blood. Exactly. Uh, the scriptures are human and inspired. Jesus is God and man. And the key there is, oh, this is, this is really nice. The key in doing theology correctly is that we want to make distinctions without separations. So we have two things that are happening, right? We have, let's just take, let's take as an example, the incarnation. So we have one person, Jesus, with two natures. And so we have the divine nature and we have the human nature. And there's two, there's two temptations. There's the there's the temptation to separate the two, and that separation of the divine and human nature is what we call Nestorianism. It's a pulling apart. There's also the temptation to to blur the distinction, to say that really they're they're kind of the they're the same. You can't really make a hard distinction between the two. And that would be the error of Eutychianism. You blur that you don't maintain a distinction. And that's also wrong. So the so the whole goal in theology is you want to have a distinction without a separation. 
So we distinguish the two natures of Christ, but we don't separate them. We distinguish law and gospel. We don't confuse them or separate them. We distinguish body and soul, but we don't confuse or separate them. That's the this is the whole kind of work in theology. So, so Jill, you're a hundred percent onto it. It's it's uh it's making a distinction without con- confusing or without or without separating. Good. Okay, let's see. Keep checking the chat. We can just do this, but I think we'll, I want to if we can cover a couple more paragraphs. Let's see how we're doing on time here. Oh, let's good. Let's let's see if we can land this plan plane, and then we can have some conversation. Uh, so, oh, so we're talking about the distinction here. Back to Luther. We're talking about the distinction of a faux repentance and a true repentance. So, one, they grieve more about the prohibition of the evil desires than they do about the mortification of their corrupt desires. So that they're they're on the flesh side of that flesh spirit distinction, and they're upset when they get caught because they really want to do their own deal. Uh, for if they were free of the fear of cross and punishment, the thief would much prefer to steal than to abstain from another's property. In other words, if, if the, if the affliction was gone, would you go back to your ways or has it changed you? Therefore he grieves that he's restrained by fear of punishment. This way Laban is also described not as truly repentant or as coming to his senses, but he grieves that by the power of God, a curb has been placed on his lusts and furious passions. Remember curb, first use of the law, curbs a sinful flesh. It's a superficial repentance, just as Saul says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. He's concerned about a bad reputation, about disgrace among the elders, not about the fact that he offended God. And this is the, the mark of true repentance, is that we are concerned that we have offended God. This is the difference between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. A terrified conscience knows that God is the one who's mad. Remember King David in Psalm 51. Oh, here Luther's going to say that. A truly repentant heart is so affected that it dreads nothing else but the wrath and indignation of God. Take no account of disgrace among men, provided it knows that God is propitious. Even as David expressed this feeling and sense of sin in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's wicked in your sight. That is the that is the that is true repentance that recognizes that God is the one who's upset. It must be observed that hypocrites remain true to form when they are not permitted to vent their anger according to their liking. They nevertheless make a show of their rage and special power, lest they seem inferior to those whom they hate and persecute. In other words, Laban is not going to lose face, even though the Lord has said, I'm setting Jacob free and you can't stop him. He's not going to lose face. He's still going to go through with his plan. He's still going to he's still going to have this his military operation. He's going to go and find the high point and he's going to surround him in this way and make a show of his strength so that even though he doesn't destroy him, now he can look like it's benevolence or whatever. It's all about him. Mount Gilead was not so named at the time. Luther's going to Note that that name came later, which I didn't know, but by anticipation, it's here called by the name given to it for the first uh, for the first time later. Now, Moses seems to indicate that Laban took possession of the top of the mountain. Jacob pitched his tent at the bottom of the mountain to the effect that the former Laban made the point that he was greater and more powerful. But immediately a rhetorical exaggeration and piling up of Jacob's sins follows. And we will take up that next week.
Okay. It's a good spot to stop. Uh, let me, uh, let's see if I have any announcements and we'll stop the recording. If you are watching this uh, later on the recording, come and join us live. It's a lot of fun. We can uh, chat and it's always great. Uh, also this, uh, yes, this Saturday, I'll be up in Chicago for the apologetics conference. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I'll put the link in the description here for that. If you, But if you go to wolfmuller.co slash events, uh, you can see all the information for when that is. Uh, so that's good. Yep. Time change this weekend, at least here in the United States. Oh, that's right. This is a, so th if you're not in the United States, we have daylight savings time this week, which means, so we'll be nine o'clock central time, which will stay at the same time on the calendar. But your clock might not adjust at the same time that our clock adjusts. So I'll try to send out the link and try to keep an eye on that too. Um, try to do something international when there's time changes. Or if you're like in, if you're in Arizona where there's no time, time change, that'll be, that'll be nice for you. We'll be an hour later, right? I can never figure it out. All right.